0: All right, we are going back to the book of John, and so if you're not there, go ahead and join me in John chapter four. If you remember, we took a, a quick excursus, if you will, just we jumped out of John to look at gospel clarity, not only the gospel itself, but also the response to the gospel being faith alone, the only condition. For salvation is trusting in the finished work, the final solution of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And so to kind of bring us back up to speed, today we're going to look at the second hand selected sign that John recorded in his gospel. But if you recall chapter four, we looked at Jesus's divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. We went through that multiple weeks. We followed that up with Jesus discipling his disciples, teaching him how to think about His conversation with the Samaritan woman. And then also the fields that were, if you recall, white with harvest. And then we saw the follow-up of that discipleship moment when there was a positive response by many of the Samaritan people. Not only to the testimony of the woman, but also to the words of Jesus Christ himself. And so that's where we've been here. And now Jesus, in our passage today, he's going to restart the journey that he had started three or four days earlier. Remember, he kind of got locked into Samaria. They asked him to stay an extra couple days. And so he was leaving Judea from from the Passover feast, he was leaving Judea and he was coming back to Galilee. And we'll look at a map again, but he was going up north. It was about a three-day journey. And so he had added to here based on this successful ministry in Samaria. Okay. He had stayed around another couple of days. One of the things that we're going to see is, is he comes up into the region of Galilee. This region is now going to become kind of the center of his ministry, the hub of his ministry for the next 18 months to 24 months of his life. Now, He'll bounce in and out of Jerusalem. In fact, when we get to chapter five, he's gonna be bouncing back down to Judea. But this area up near Galilee becomes the center, the central hub, and more specifically, the city of Capernaum, which was on the sea, that's gonna become become kind of the center of his hub. Now, why does he go up there? And this is what we've gotta think. God doesn't think the way we think. We always think in terms of numbers. We always think in terms of blowing out a facility. We the, the more, the better, right? That's what we typically think. If I can preach the gospel to 200, or I can preach the gospel to 2,000 on the same day, guess where I'm going? We would go to the 2,000. That's just how we naturally think. What's really fascinating about the life of Jesus is where's the where are the people? Where's the buzz? Where's the activity at this time in the nation? It's down in Judea. That's where he would have gotten the biggest bang for his buck, right? In terms of preaching. But else guess what else he would have gotten? A different kind of bang. The Pharisees, right? He he would have irritated the spiritual leaders in such a way that they probably would have expedited his timeline. And so he's got this incredible wisdom going on. He slides into a less populated area. He's doing verifiable signs and miracles. He slides back into Judea from time to time. People are hearing about him. He also verifies his ministry down there. But before they can get their hands around his neck, he goes back up to to Galilee. And we're going to see this dance if you want to call it that, but, but Jesus on God's timeline waiting for his hour to come. This morning, though, he is heading back up the galley. This is going to be kind of his home base, and we're going to look at John's second hand-selected sign. Now, why did he select seven signs? Out of all the things Jesus did, John selected seven of them. Why? So that you might believe, so that I might believe, so that anybody that ever reads the book of John might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And that by believing in him, you'll have life in his name. That's how eternal life is wrought. It's not wrought by better behavior. It's wrought by trusting in the right object of faith that can save you and provide life that never ends. This is John's second miracle. And so, as I mentioned in verse 43, Jesus gets back on the road. After two days, it says he departed from there and went to Galilee. And so the two days mentioned here, we see in verse 30 of chapter four, these are the two extra days he spent in Samaria, really just, just funnily interested and responsive souls and spending time with these Samaritan people. And, you know, one of those things that we've got to understand is that his time in Samaria, as we looked at, is it was a divine appointment, not only with the woman, but also with the group of people that responded to the woman's testimony. There was a divine appointment. Uh, Chapter four, verse four said he needed to go through Samaria. So it wasn't an unexpected distraction. Jesus needed to go there. But now his time there is is over in the sense of he's now moving on to Galilee. And guess what he needs to get up there for? The story we're going to read about today. See, he's on God's timetable. And we're gonna see even later in the book of John that people are gonna to try to push him and rush him to do things. And he never succumbs to that. His, his eyes are stuck heavenward. He's waiting on the Father to move. He's moving now to Galilee. And we've got this interesting statement in verse 44 and 45. See if you can pick up the apparent contradiction here. Okay, I want you to see if you can pick that up before I bring that out. Verses 44 through 45, it says, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. This statement that a prophet doesn't receive honor in his own country is true. In fact, we have that borne out elsewhere in the scriptures, but it doesn't seem to follow with what fits here. Did you notice the apparent, like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to fit. Look at that box there. The Galileans received him. Now, Galilee is where Nazareth is. This is his hometown. This is his home area. And what's really fascinating is that this stage in Jesus's ministry in Galilee, they did receive him. In fact, we're going to look at some passages. They were very impressed with him at this time. It's only gonna be later that they start rethinking this whole thing and be like, I don't know about him. (laughs) Isn't that Joseph's son? Like, didn't we see him fall down and scrape his knee when he was three? Like, how could he be? And they start to overthink it when they should have just taken the, the signs and the wonders that were messianically prophesied that he would do. They should have just taken those. They should have just taken his teaching at face value, but we'll see. They begin to overthink it at some point, but not here. They, they're not overthinking it. They're just like, this is amazing. And you might even wonder, this is a hometown kid. Man, look how he's like becoming one of the best rabbis in Israel. I mean, he's getting known. I mean, it might've been that kind of reception, but we see at this point in his ministry, he's popular. People are flocking to him, and we'll kind of see that going forward. So this section here, when we try to match this with the other Gospels, it seems to coincide with his first, what we would call, real tour of ministry. He had been up there. He'd already done the miracle at Canaan Galilee, turning water to wine. That's in this region. But he hadn't actually taken a tour of ministry where he's doing healing the sick, performing signs and wonders, teaching in their synagogues. This is the first time he's doing that in this region uh, officially, if you will. And this is why Luke 4, 14 through 15 says, and I think it describes this time frame, then Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and then news of him went out through all the surrounding region and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So you see this very positive response at this stage in his ministry from his hometown group. Okay, he sees it, you see it there. The statement that a prophet has no honor in his own country, it will be borne out to be true. We're gonna see that later in his time there. But initially that wasn't the case. He was very positively received. This negative response that we'll see eventually was based on really familiarity with him. That's what I was kind of alluding to. In this, in this Jesus, don't we know his dad? Don't we know his brothers? I don't know if this guy can be. And they start overthinking things instead of just trusting what the Lord was desiring to show them in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what it seems to be the case is is based on these signs and wonders, which were legitimate, they were validated, they were verifying. And even on his initial teaching, we'll see, they received him based on his initial teaching. But at some point, like I said, they began to overthink. We see this in Matthew 13 verses 54 through 58. It says, Now, when he had come to his own country, this is later, this is a a different time period than what we're looking at this morning. This is down the road. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, And notice what the two things that they say. Number one, where does this man get this wisdom? In other words, they're impressed by his teaching. They're like, Wow, this is really good. This is wise. And then notice the other thing they, they draw attention to. And where does this man get these mighty works, okay? Signs and wonders, his teaching. They're like, this is otherworldly. This is unique. This is incredible. But notice the questions that start rolling in. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And is his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And notice their reaction to that. It's not like, let's investigate him further. Was he born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, like Micah 5.2 said? Is there something legitimate to this virgin birth story that was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14? Does he have a, a lineage to the tribe of Judah? Does he have the rightful Way to sit on the the throne. Is he doing things that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about? Is there a forerunner that's crying out in the wilderness? Check, 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 check. If they would have just investigated. They could go to the temple and trace his genealogy. It's all there. They don't do that. It says they were offended at him. They were bothered by him. Who's this guy think he is? He's one of us. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Pharisees later, they're gonna criticize Nicodemus for trying to subtly stick up for Jesus. And they're like, are you also a Nazarene? (laughs) Like, are you a piece of worthless? You know, it's kind of the idea. Go search the scriptures. No prophet arises out of Nazareth. So they were very lazy in their approach. They got offended because they knew him. There was a familiarity with him. And then this is where that phrase was actually implemented. A prophet is not without honor, except in his his own country and in his own house. And now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So at some point in the future, this region that we're gonna see this morning is responding so positively to him here, they'll stop responding positively. And as a result, the number of miracles that he does there starts to diminish because they won't trust in him. Okay. So that's going to come. But at this point, as we've noted, they have received him. And one of the reasons they received him, we'll see in the text, is because they had seen what he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Now, that takes us all the way back to the end of chapter two. Okay. And there's some conversations that have happened in between there. And all of us have slept 12 to 14 times since I don't know how many weeks we've been going through these sections, right? But it takes us all the way back to chapter two, and we'll talk about that in a second. But to receive means they received his personhood. They welcomed him. We're gonna see based on other gospel accounts that that they welcomed him to town with open arms. They had him over. They fed him. They invited him to speak in synagogues. He was a a local boy that had done well. He was becoming a a very well-known rabbi probably generically in their thinking. And they're just like, hey, we want to we welcome him home. One of the reasons, as I mentioned, is they, they had seen these signs. And these were verifiable validation type signs that were, that were legitimate miracles that Jesus had done. Now, remember, uh, if you just hold your finger there and just jump back in chapter 2, verse 23, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, which again was a very crowded time, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. In other words, they, they saw them. This wasn't, hey, bring somebody up on stage, turn them to the side, and then tell everyone in the audience that their foot, you know, their leg grew two inches. <laughs> you know, this unverifiable type of thing. It was like, man, this dude has been blind for his whole life. And now he's walking around and see what happened. Well, Jesus healed him. It was verifiable type stuff. In fact, it was so convincing that one of the most probably skeptical of people in the day would probably have been Nicodemus, or at least the people in his circles. But notice what Nicodemus says in chapter 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. See, God used these signs and these miracles to get people's attention. Why? So they would listen to his message. That's what the goal was. Jesus wasn't just going around like a magician going, hey, hey, watch this disappear. Like to impress people, you know what I mean? That wasn't the goal of his signs and wonders. It was, let me verify for you that I am who the Old Testament says that I am. Now that I've got your attention, let me explain it to you. Let me teach you. That was the goal of his ministry. The community in Galilee also began to recognize some of them had traveled down for the Passover feast. They had seen Jesus down there. They're like, isn't this Joe?" I mean, don't we know? Isn't he from that? Oh my goodness. Look at what he's doing. They're shocked. But this is getting getting their attention. And now he's come back to town and they're like, man, I want to hang out with him. I want to do some things with him. I want to have him over. This guy's been doing some pretty uh, impressive things. And then according to Matthew 4, 23 through 25, he did even more signs in Galilee. So not only had he just been amazing down in Jerusalem, but now he's returned, and this tour of ministry that he's on now in Galilee is equally impressive. In fact, here's what Matthew says in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And so we see that Jesus's ministry and his notoriety and fame begins to explode, During this time in Galilee. And one of these signs, one of these miraculous signs that happened during this time, John kind of catalogs through all of them and says, You know what? I'm going to pick this one to share in my gospel. And that's the one we're about to read about. It's the healing of a nobleman's son. And even more touching, it's the healing of a nobleman's little boy. It was a little boy. He was a little boy, as the text is going to tell us. Let's set the stage in verse 46. As he's coming back into the region of Galilee, the text tells us that he came back to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. The previous section simply just told us that Jesus was coming into the region of Galilee, but now he returns to Cana. Cana is about nine miles north of Nazareth, where he grew up. And Remember, we made the argument in John 2 that, that Jesus's family most likely knew the family, that was had one of the participants in the wedding, uh, probably the groom, there in in chapter two. And so let me bring up this map just to kind of again set our stage geographically. Jesus had come down from here; he was in Jerusalem, and we remember he he could have gone out this direction around Samaria, but he said he needed to go through Samaria. He stayed here for two days, and then he ends up back in this region of Galilee. And he goes to Cana. This is where this story is going to take place. What's so interesting is he's in Cana. The nobleman, what does verse 46 tell us? He came from Capernaum. Well, here's Capernaum up here sitting on the Sea of Galilee. It's about 20 miles apart. It's about a 20-mile distance. It's about a seven-hour hike through that area of the world. One of the things that we learn about him is that he was a nobleman, kind of an interesting word. You might have different translations that have a different word there, but basically the word means that he belonged to a king. He was a royal official. There was somebody that he worked, he wasn't a king himself, but he worked for somebody that was nobility or royalty, and he's coming from Capernaum one of the things that we we never find out from this account is the identity of the royal official. Love to know his name, love to know who he is, love to know a little bit about his family, but we're going to speculate a little bit, okay? So let me just state that. We're speculating as to who he might be based on some of the facts that we do know historically and also of what's said about him. So here are some things that we know. He was a man who served a king, either in a civil or a military capacity. We don't the text doesn't tell us which, but we know that he was in an employ of a king, okay? He was a royal official in that way. One of the things we know about Capernaum is there was a king there, or at least he was known as a king. He wasn't technically a king, but this is where Herod Antipas resided. He was a, a, not an official king, but the people would call him King Herod. And so he was viewed as nobility or royalty in Capernaum. And as best we can tell, during this time frame, this would have been the only one that would have fit this category of being nobility or being a king. It would have been Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, uh, future to this event, is going to be the one who got in trouble with John the Baptist, if you recall, put him in prison and had him beheaded. So this is the same. I know there's lots of Herods in the Bible. Sometimes it's hard to keep track of which one's which. This is Herod Antipas. He's located in Capernaum. So it's very likely that this man, this nobleman that we're looking at, worked for him or was employed by him in some way. That's really what we know speculative. But what's really interesting, if this is part of the story, and we don't know, we're just, again, I'm in the realm of speculation here. Um, it is possible that this very man in our story is a man by the name of Chuza who was Herod's chief steward. We learn about him in Luke 8.3. And, and if this is the case, if this speculation is true, it's it, we've got some incredible positive consequences as a result of this interaction with this man, which is, apart from the healing of his son, sorry, spoiler alert, Jesus is gonna heal his son. I think you knew that, though. I mean, but we're just gonna enjoy the story as we go. Jesus is gonna heal his son. Great positive outcome. Down in verse 53, we're going to see that not only does he trust in Christ for eternal life, but his entire household trusts in Christ for eternal life. And you can imagine a mama at home with little boy in her hands, watching the very life go out of him, and then suddenly he's healed. And she says, "Whoever did this?" And you're going to see if this is the woman. I'm going to devote my life to this man. You can you can understand that mothers in the room, you know, fathers in the room seven-hour hike for my kid, bring it on. (laughs) If that's going to heal him, I'll do anything. That's the mindset of a parent. And so we can relate to them. One of the things that we see, if, again, this is chosen, again, we're in the realm of speculation, but just I think would be interesting. Luke 8, 1 through 3, now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city, speaking of Jesus, and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him, and certain women... Mary called Magdalene and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who did what? Provided for him from their substance. Wouldn't that be interesting if this was the man and that was his wife and she trusted Christ when he healed her little boy and she devoted the rest of her life, giving out of her wealth to support the Lord Jesus and his ministry? Wouldn't that be a cool story? I don't know if it's true. True. Again, we're in the realm of speculation. He's not identified, but it would make sense. It definitely would fit the details that we do have. If this is Chusa, there's definitely some neat and positive things that have come out of uh, this interaction. But you know what? There's also one negative thing in the future with this man, because do you know that this servant of Herod, whoever he is, if it's Chusa, if it was somebody else that worked for Herod Antipas, was most likely also present And experienced the arrest and the despicable events surrounding the beheading of John the Baptist, that they were probably there when all of that went down and could do nothing about it because they had no power to stop it. How tragic would that be? A believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus had healed their son. They had trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And then they had to helplessly watch as their boss behaved like an absolute imbecile and beheaded a co-laborer of Jesus Christ, a cousin of Jesus Christ, somebody that was a forerunner of the Messiah, and they had to just silently watch as that happened. See, that that event that I'm talking about is still future to our event in the Gospels. How tragic would that be to, to be devoted to the one that healed your son and then be able to do nothing to help protect someone who was dear to him? This is one of the potential tragedies of the story, one of the other things we're gonna see in verse 47, just based on Jesus's comment, we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, this man was most likely a Jew, okay? He was most likely Jewish in ethnicity. And we'll talk about that when we get there. So again, don't know his identity for sure. Whoever he was, we know one thing. He's heard about Jesus. He knows his son is dying. He says, this is my last chance. I'm, I'm just gonna go. And we see his approach here as we start to read in verse uh, 47, he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee. He had heard about the miracles he had been doing there. He went to him and he implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. You, you can see this. Oh, Jesus is nearby. I'm going, right? Seven hour hike, no problem. I'm, I'm going. This is my last hope. And again, as I've painted before the, the scenario, I mean, you can. You can imagine this, the pain of a father watching a a child die and not being able to do anything about it. You know, when Carrie was a baby, her five-year-old brother was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And uh, wow, sorry, I wasn't expecting this. Um, But her parents were willing to do anything to find treatment for him. To find healing for him, they were flying all over the country. You know, we make fun of these faith healers on TV with the with the nap. If you send me a thousand dollars, I'll send you this napkin and it'll heal. He was buying napkins from everywhere. He was doing whatever he could do to save his son. Amazingly enough, I don't have time to get into the details of the story, but God healed him. My my brother in law is alive today. He's cancer free. He's been cancer free since he's five years old, but. Uh, it didn 't look good for a while, in fact, they went to operate on him uh, when he was five, and they they cut him open, cut his brain open it was in his brain and they couldn 't even operate because they couldn 't tell where his brain cells met his cancer cells and they sewed him back up and they said took him take him home he 's got six months to live. Can you imagine that news for parents? i was mean, just tragic when I see this man i I see my my father in law I see my mother in law just willing to do anything just Whatever it took, if I have to give every last cent in my bank account, I'll give it. If I have to borrow money that I can never pay back, I'm going to borrow it. I don't, You know what I mean? It's, it's at that level of desperation, we're, we're going to see this man that he is at his wits end. Enter Jesus. His fame had already spread from his signs and wonders in Jerusalem. And now he'd been doing other things in the Galilean region. He says, man, I got hope. Maybe. So it says he implored him. It means to, to ask or to inquire or to interrogate or to beseech. And, and we see when we jump down to verse 49, this is not just a son. I mean, that would be tragic enough, a grown son. This is a little boy. This is a child that is, is on the verge of death. And one of the things that we see about this man is this word implored is in the imperfect tense. It means he kept on continually asking him. He was persistent. You can imagine a crowd around Jesus, and he's trying to ask Jesus, and he's not sure Jesus heard him, and he's trying to ask him again, and he's trying to, he's just trying to get his attention. He's just asking him and imploring him and begging him, and you can can just feel that coming through, uh, even in the Greek verb tenses. And again, why is he so desperate? Well, he's at the point of death, and that phrase is also used in the imperfect tense. It, the idea is that he'd been on his deathbed for a while. He was dying and, and his father knew he was dying. He, he had seen it. This was an ongoing thing that he had witnessed. And it just shows his desperation. It, it, the idea that I'm not leaving here with a no. I'm not leaving here. I can't leave here with a no. I gotta leave here with him saying yes. I, and so he keeps working and he keeps pushing and he keeps driving. And it's really interesting what Jesus says here because although he's speaking to the noblemen, you're gonna see that he shifts gears in Greek grammar. He, he says to him, verse 48, let's read it. Jesus said to him, the noblemen, unless you people, plural, all of y'all, right? He's, now he's talking to the group unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And so Jesus is now using this as an opportunity to quickly plant a seed of truth to the crowd. I don't think he's being offensive to the man. I think he's saying, all y'all want to see signs and wonders. And we'll, we'll see because it, it proceeds very positively from here. But he's just making a, a, a pretty common accusation of Jews. And this word see means to to understand, to, to witness, if you will. And the idea is, again, as I said, he switched from third person to him, to you people, second person, plural. This probably indicates that the nobleman was a Jew. That's where we kind of make that assumption from. He's saying, unless y'all see it, I'm speaking Southern now, right, not Greek. Unless y'all see it, y'all ain't gonna believe, right? And it's kind of this group. He says this to the group. This is a teaching moment, if if you will. And this, by the way, was very common understanding of the Jewish nation as a whole. Paul's going to bring that out later in his epistles that Jews are always looking for a sign. And how many signs? Just one more. And then just one more. And just so interesting, when when we get into chapter six, I mean, Jesus is going to feed 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people. He's going to walk on water and he's going to get on the other side and they're going to say, hey, Jesus, show us a sign. I would have been like, you mean... Besides the ones I've already been showing you? I mean, goodness sakes. But this is just kind of indicative of the Jewish nation. They're always looking for a sign. And you know what? God in his grace has been willing to accommodate this throughout the history of the nation. It's amazing. He's so good. (laughs) They don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But he's so willing to accommodate things in order to verify and validate his message. He did it with Moses when Moses was scared to go as the divinely appointed leader and God gave him two signs to convince the people that he was the divinely appointed leader all throughout the Old Testament, obviously in the life of Jesus we're looking at. And then we see that in the ministry of the apostles in the first century, same thing, signs and wonders to validate what? The message and the messenger, that's the key, validating the message and the messenger. And he says this uh, pretty strongly, you will by no means believe, he uses a double negation. You will never, no, not ever believe unless you see signs and wonders. It, it kind of alludes to how dependent they were on seeing signs to actually believe what's being saved. And so they were overly occupied with signs and wonders. Now you say, well, what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? I mean, Jesus is willing to give that to them. Just one more sign. Here, here's the only problem with anybody, and this is true of anybody in our day as well, that's overly occupied with signs and wonders. Now, do we we serve a miraculous God? Can a miraculous God do miraculous things even today? Of course he can. He's God, he can do whatever he wants to do. But when we get overly occupied with that, you know, one of the things we're doing is we're playing into the game plan of the enemy. We don't often think about that. And here's why I say this. Satan has attempted... And he continues to attempt to counterfeit and pose as an imposter by utilizing similar methods of signs and wonders and will continue to do so throughout the course of human history. And they're not vaudeville side acts that are like, oh yeah, his leg didn't grow two inches. That's just a bunch of baloney. Satan can actually mirror and mask miracles that look legitimate. In fact, even go back to the plagues of Egypt, right? Right? They turn the, the Nile River to blood. What do his magicians do? They take water. They're like, ooh, hocus pocus, boom. It looks like blood too. What I would have said, that's great. Now take the blood away if you're really powerful. They just created more bloody water. They didn't actually help the situation. They, they, when, when they had the overrun of frogs, they created more frogs. Again, take the frogs away. That's, that would help the situation. See, he can mirror an impos- uh and, and form as an imposter. In fact, we know in the end times Jesus says this in Matthew twenty four, twenty four, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That means even believers can be deceived oftentimes by signs and wonders that Satan is doing. We know that he's going to establish a one world government. He's going to elevate a one leader, a global leader known as the Antichrist. And we know that in that time, the book of Revelation says us, he is going to be doing signs and wonders through this man that look legitimate. In fact, one of them, it's going to appear that he suffers a fatal wound and that he's raised from the dead. He's going to mimic all that stuff. And so if someone is overly focused on signs and wonders, they are stepping into a realm where they can be deceived. Is there something better than signs and wonders? Does the scripture tell us about something that's better than signs and wonders? Well, if signs and wonders were given in the first place to validate and verify a message and a messenger, then what would be better than signs and wonders? Well, we don't have time to go there today, but it's right here. It's the written word of God. This is where God wants us overly occupied with now. Not waiting for a sign to appear uh, behind a billboard while we're driving, not a sign to appear behind a person when we're walking down the street, not that kind of stuff. He wants our nose in the book. He wants us to, He has revealed truth to us, He wants us to understand it. How does this fit together? How does this put together? And that's exactly what 2 Peter says. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19, Peter talks about the day that he was on a mountain with Jesus when Jesus glue, he glowed. <laughs> I don't even know. That's what's so sad. Anyways, his glory shone through his body. Pretty miraculous, pretty incredible sign. And if I was Peter, I'd have been like, man, listen to me. I was there when he, when he glowed, right? I was there when he glowed, listen to me. But Peter says, we've got a more sure word of prophecy than even that experience I had. And it's the written word of God. That's the gist of that passage. So I kind of got off on a side note there. Let's get back to uh, the story. But this is ultimately what he's communicating here. Now, now the nobleman hears all this. He he hears this message to the crowd. He might even agree with them. Oh, I can see what Jesus is saying. But you know what? Is he in the mood to have a theological debate? Is he in the mood to talk about these these truths that are true? No, what is he in the mood for? Look at verse 49. Like a good father, he's single focused right now. Time's running out. And so what does he do in verse 49? He repeats his request. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't even say, hey, good point. You're right. I wish I wasn't like that. He's like, oh, one more side, Jesus. Help my boy. And, and I, I might agree with you, but I need this done. I need you to step in and save the day. And so this is what he says in verse 49. The nobleman says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, again, this is probably what he was repeatedly asking Jesus before. We just have it recorded now. But notice that, and again, it's not to criticize him, to be, but, but to observe how he's thinking and what he asks. There's actually two faulty assumptions that he's making about Jesus, and it's just due to, to ignorance about who he truly is and what he's capable of. And notice if you can kind of pick it up in his statement. First, he says, sir, come down. He assumes that Jesus has to be present with his son in order to heal him. That's how every other charlatan worked, right? They showed up on site. They did their little whatever dance. I don't know what they did. And, and, but they had to be there. They made a big production of it. We're gonna see that he assumes that Jesus has to be present with him. Jesus is gonna show him, I've got power over distance. Don't worry about that. I don't need to be there to heal your son. We're gonna see that Jesus corrects his thinking here. And then second, this man assumes that once his son dies, there's nothing Jesus could do about it. It's final, it's over. He can't help me anymore if my son dies first. But if I can get him there before my son dies, maybe he can do something. And what doesn't he understand at this point? That Jesus can raise the dead. And guess what? People still didn't understand it when we get to John 11 because Lazarus's sister's gonna say to Jesus, if you had been here geographically, my brother wouldn't have died. And now that he's dead, he's been in the grave for four days. As the King James says, he stinketh, right, by now. There's nothing you can do about it. And Jesus is going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. (laughs) I'm going to take care of this. No problem. In fact, I stayed away for a reason. I could have healed him from where I was. See John 4. Distance doesn't hold me. Nothing holds Jesus. And so we're going to see that here. So he's got these faulty assumptions, but you know what? He is, re- he is so ready to be correctable <laughs> if it means his son is healed. He doesn't. That's fine. Correct me all, all you can. And Jesus is going to do that. He's going to blow his mind here in verses 50 through 51. He's going to say, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Go your way. Depart. Go home right now. Why? Because his son lives. Now, based on his response, we're going to say he believed the word of Jesus. He believed that his son lived. I don't think that, you know, we just make the distinction. I don't think he just thought his son was still alive. Like Jesus is like, go home, spend time with your son while he's still alive. I don't think that's what he understood. I think he understood Jesus had healed his son. He is living. He is going to live is, is kind of the, the implication here. And, and you'll see, I think he believed that. Why did he believe it? What's one indication? He left. He quit begging Jesus. He quit imploring Jesus. He left. It shows that he believed that Jesus had healed him. And so this man, although a grown man had childlike faith, Jesus said it, settles it. That was his mindset at that point. And so it says he believed it. I I don't think in this point of the narrative, because we're gonna bring this out in verse 53, I don't think he had believed in Jesus for eternal life here. I think he had just believed Jesus's word that his son was healed. That's what I think he believed here. I think later we're gonna see that he he trusts in him as the Messiah. I think we'll see the distinction there. Had he not believed Jesus, uh, what he said, he would have stayed around and tried to kept convincing him to come back to Capernaum. So it was childlike faith, and he most likely began the walk. Could you imagine this walk home, by the way? Seven hours? Like just anticipating what he was gonna see when he get there. I mean, just kind of excited, nervous, maybe at the same time, lots of things going on. Just as a, as a comment, you know, I've heard people say, Jesus said it, I believe it, that settles it. You guys kind of heard that phrase? I actually think I would adjust that because Jesus said it and that settles it whether you believe it or not. <laughs> uh, honestly, when Jesus speaks, things, things happen. Now, hopefully we come along and believe it so we can enjoy the, the process there. But when Jesus spoke this, that boy was healed. That boy was healed in that moment. We're gonna see that this is gonna be born out to be true. By the way, it's really interesting because Jesus had just said in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not by no means believe this nobleman became a model of a man who had not seen a sign and wonder for his boy, but he believed first. Pretty, pretty cool. Jesus is gonna tell Thomas later, blessed are you because you believe, but blessed are those who believe and haven't seen the things that you, i.e. you. <laughs> Everyone in this audience is, is who he's talking about there when we get to the end of John. And so he becomes a model for those who have not seen something, but still believe or trust in Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus is pretty amazing, isn't he? I mean, this is, this is healing from a distance. And in some, level, uh, in some level, I think this is what eternity is going to be like. Because we read this story, and we're like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's Jesus. That's, I mean, that's what Jesus does. I mean, we're still kind of amazed, but we know that he's capable of these things, and yet we're still kind of amazed. And I think that's what eternity is going to be like with our Savior, I think it's going to be like, wow, you're amazing. I mean, I knew that. And I believe I've believed that for a long time. But every time I see you, you just blow my mind again and again. You just blow me away. As we look at Jesus, I mean, we kind of expect this from him. This is like a day in the office for him on earth in terms of his ministry in Galilee. And yet it's, it's still mind-blowing to intersect with lives of real people that have real emotions, that have real needs, and so he's still doing that, obviously, today uh, in, in many different ways. Great thing for this man is he had he home now. Now, by the way, just imagine this man coming around the bend, and he starts to see familiar faces coming toward him. That could mean one of two things. Your son lives or your son's died. He's passed away. He doesn't know. He's trusting Jesus' word right now, but he, he hasn't been able to verify it yet. And he sees this group. Thankfully for him, it was good news. He didn't have to get all the way home. Another just gracious element in this story. He didn't have to walk all the way to find this out. The, the Lord actually motivated the servants to come running toward him and meet him along the road. So thankfully they bore good news. Uh, they got good news that his son lives. And immediately what do they start doing? Comparing notes. I love it. Uh, it's typical, typical people they are like, okay, what time did this happen? Okay, what time did this happen? Let's, let's make sure this was the same cause. That it wasn't just like, you know, he had a bad bowl of chili or something. Like, there, there's, <laughs> he was actually ill. He was on the way to death. And then when Jesus spoke, he was healed. What time did it happen? So they start comparing time, verses 52 through 53. It says, then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And he said to them, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives and he believed and he himself believed and his whole household. Now there should have been a word, uh, hopefully that jumped out at you when I, when I read that passage that those two verses and it's the word yesterday, what's this dude just going home now for <laughs> like, why didn't he blow home that day? Okay. So we kind of get that scenario. Let me just kind of work, work that out because I, you know, the father wanted to verify, is it at the same time? Or was it just a coincidence? And so, again, notice that it says yesterday. And and here's the deal he says it's at the seventh hour. Now, depending on how uh, John is using that or how he's accounting time here, Jewish time would have been 1 p.m. That's the seventh hour. Roman time would have been 7 p.m., okay? It's very significant because if it's Jewish time, it's a little bit noteworthy that he didn't make the immediate trip home. It would have been a seven hour trip he would have got home roughly around eight o'clock. So he could have pumped it quickly, double-timed it a little bit, got home, maybe got home before dark. But again, depending on the time of year, and this is what we don't know exactly, if he had pushed, he may have been able to get home from dark. But this area, the sun sets, even today, different parts of the year between 4.40 and 7.40 p.m. So people in this day, they wouldn't travel if they had to travel in the dark, because that's when the robbers came out. That's when the bandits came out. That's when the thieves came out. And so it might've been that he just knew he couldn't get home before dark. So he spends the night and takes off the next day. But that explains the yesterday, because we're thinking, why would you wait, my man? Why would you wait? You know, you'd get right home, but that might explain it. Again, based on his intensity, you would expect this guy specifically to race home as soon as he could, but he wasn't able to. So it probably means that it was Roman time that John is talking about here, that he was healed at 7 p.m. in the evening. He's like, ah, oh, the sun's about to set. I'll never make it home. I'm going to leave first thing in the morning, okay? Same, same with the servants meeting him half way. Either, either way, this, uh, you know, whatever time it is, the servants verified the exact time, and it was the exact time. It, everything fit. And so there was no delay. Uh, what's amazing, there's no delay. It didn't take Jesus' word seven hours to travel to Capernaum, right? He said it. It hit in Capernaum. His son, was, his son lived, and his son was healed, even though it was 20 miles away. And so what it does here in in the recording of John's sign, why does he select this? Well, I think it reveals a depth of power in Jesus that we haven't seen so far, that he's got power even over distance, that he can command things into existence without having to be there in person. And we begin to see that uh, it shouldn't shock us, that he doesn't have to be geographically present to heal someone. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who's literally speaking planets into existence. I mean, it's like mind-blowing. Of course he can heal somebody 20 miles away. That's no big deal at all. So we kind of see this born out in the life of Jesus. And we see this phrase uh, here. Let's go back to verse uh, 53 toward the end of the verse there. And it says that he himself believed. Now, we'd seen earlier in the account, he had believed the word of Jesus, that Jesus was gonna heal his son. This is something Different here, I believe. What did he believe here? Well, the text isn't super clear, but I, I would just have to say uh, indirectly, it seems like he believed in Jesus here. He believed that he was the Messiah. And then everything that came with that. What, what came with that? Well, he was God's solution for the sin problem. He was the future king of Israel. And there was enough that he did in this miracle to prove to him, along with the miracles he'd been hearing about, maybe even seen, maybe he had been in Jerusalem and seen. Jesus healed, that he believed who he was. He believed his identity and he trusted in him for eternal life. And then based on his testimony, the family that he had also believed. You think it would be hard to convince a mom who a man just healed her boy from 20 miles away to convince, to trust in him for eternal life that he's the Messiah? I think that'd be a pretty easy sell. She was like, yeah, I do. I mean, I love this, man. I believe that he's the Messiah. And so uh, again, if this is Chusa, like we speculated earlier, it would make a lot of sense as to why Joanna was so devoted to him throughout her life, even uh, financially to support Jesus's ministry. And so when the miracle was confirmed, there was no doubt uh, that Jesus himself healed his son from a distance. Uh, He then believed in him. And so as we close out this morning, John says in verse 54, this again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And so this is a second hand-selected sign. Clearly, it's not the second miracle that the Lord's done in his earthly ministry. He did the water into wine in Cana back in chapter two. He did a bunch of miracles in Jerusalem that were validated and verified in John chapter two at the end of that chapter. Um, And then Matthew records when he came back to Galilee, he was doing miracles all over the place. But what John does here specifically is he he selects this one out of the grouping for a very specific reason. Really fascinating because both of the first two miracles happened in Cana, in this like nowhere'sville small village kind of town, not a not a high density in population, not a lot of significance to the city itself. But the the healing itself took place in Capernaum, but the word spoken happened in Cana. So just kind of of interesting because the first two miracles that John selects were were really more private miracles, limited audience. The the ones who actually saw it were family members and servants and, and his disciples, a couple of his disciples at the wedding. And now in this one, it was also the family and household servants and the disciples who knew and So it's kind of limited in scope, these two miracles, the first ones that John selects. That's going to change next week because Jesus is going to slide back down into Judea. And he's going to do a miracle that, that garners a lot of attention. It's going to be very public. And then there's going to be a discourse that comes out of that miracle. But we'll pick up there next week. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I, I, I so appreciate just looking at the life of Jesus and just exalting him and just considering how amazing he is uh, and, and the way that he lived his life and the way that he cared for others, um, he, he really is truly amazing. And so I, I just hope that in many small ways we did him justice this morning, exalting him uh, in the thinking of everyone that's listening, that they would be encouraged by the type of Savior that we possess. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.